in the, the book of Hebrews. Let's jump right in by reading. I'll read for you. You follow, please. The first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. May I have that series slide again, please? And let's all bow and pray. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. We have loved lifting our hearts and our voices together and singing the name and the praises of the Lord Jesus. And now we bow before him as prophet, priest, and king, especially as prophet, that he may speak to us through his word, as priest, that he may intercede for us in our weaknesses and in our sins, as king, that he may reign in our rebel natures and subdue us and have dominion over us. We submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ as we come now to his holy word, and we pray in the name of Christ, amen. Amen. So I wrestle with how to start a new book. Um, it's typical, it's a, it's a common thing for pastors to give maybe a whole day, a whole message that's just like introduction to the book. Here's what we're going to see, here's what's in it, and so on. My tendency through the years has been more like they just say, all right, let's start in chapter 1, verse 1, and dive in. And so I've wrestled with how to begin this one, and I've decided we are going to have a little bit of intro this morning. So here's some intro, number of points of intro. Number one, how many of you like good meat? You like filet mignon? You like fogo de chow? You like, who is it? We have the meats. Who's that? Arby's. You like Arby's? That was quite a range, wasn't it? <laughs> Suddenly dropped down to the earth there. All right, but you like meat, right? The book of Hebrews is meat. There's a lot of meat. There's stuff for babes too, but there's a lot of meat. The author tells us he wants his people to receive the meat in chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. They're not up there. Just listen. He's struggling to present solid food things to them. And so he says, here's the problem. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, spiritual milk, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. You don't want to be unskilled in the word of righteousness. You want to be ready for meat. Unskilled in it since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice in the word and application, in the word and life, in the word and ethics, constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We can expect to get some meat in the book of Hebrews. Here's a suggested response to the meat that's in the book of Hebrews. This should be your response, or may it be your response. I read through Jeremiah recently, and I paused on Jeremiah 15, 16. 
God's giving Jeremiah his word, and Jeremiah says to God, your words were found, and I did eat them, and your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Your words were found, and I did eat them. Oh, may we be a finding people. May we be a word-eating people, sticking with that metaphor. And may the word of God, may the book of Hebrews be the joy and rejoicing of our heart, we who are called by his name. All right, a little more talk about introductions versus getting into the series. Introductions versus launching into the verse that's in the sermon of the day. I've often thought of, and I've mentioned to you sometimes, that an introduction is like a porch, and the sermon or the series is like the house. So you have guests coming. How big a porch do you want them to have to cross to get it? Do you want a huge porch in a teeny house? Probably not. You probably want a smaller porch, and then they come into a large house. So some sermon introductions get away. They get to be too long, and they're like a huge porch that gets followed with a little house. That's not a good idea. I'm going to try and keep the porch on the small side today. Let me give you a little, another little metaphor how I'm thinking about entering into the sermon. So you'll get it. Hang in with me for a minute. So imagine you actually own and have in your fenced-in backyard a lion, a really real-for-real lion, a male lion with a big mane, and he roars and the trees shake. Imagine you actually have a lion, and you tell me, Steve, no kidding. I have a lion. What do you think I say next? You're a lion. Okay, no. <laughs> that was clever. What do I say next? I say, well, can I come over? I want to see your lion. I want to get up. In fact, how big is your backyard? Pretty big. Okay, if he's at the far end, I want to go out the door. I want you to do it first so I can see if he came and ate you before you could get back in. But then if you survive, I want to go out the door. I want to get as close to the lion as we dare. I want to experience lion. Now, when we come to the book of Hebrews, I could just take you straight in and introduce you to the lion. Or I could keep you on the front porch for a while. Suppose I come over to see your lion, and you say, now, before we go out back and see the lion, I need to give you a lecture on lions 101. And you start lecturing me about facts and data and interesting information about lions, what they eat, how they're born, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, shut up. I don't want to hear that. Just take me out and let me see your lion. So you might be eager, like, just please get us into verse 1. I want to meet the lion. All right, I'm, I'm conscious of that, but I'm going to keep you on the porch for just a minute. You all okay with that? Say okay. Thank you, you're very nice people. Here's a question for you on the porch. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who can tell us? God. That's good. It was obviously a man because he wrote it. He, Bruce. All right. Who, who, wrote the book? who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't really know, do we? You know, when we get to heaven, there are many things that are mysterious to us now that we're going to discover then, and I'm pretty sure one of them is going to be, who wrote the book of Hebrews? It's probably somebody as they come through the pearly gates, that'll be their first, Lord, the first thing I want to know is, who wrote Hebrews? Down through the ages, there have been various views. One dominant view has been that Paul wrote it. Another view has been that Paul wrote it in the Hebrew language, but then Luke translated it into Greek. 
their reasons for that. Another somewhat dominant view has been that Barnabas wrote it because in Acts 18, he is described as an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. And whoever wrote Hebrews is eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. You come down to the 1500s and the two great reformers, Luther and Calvin. Luther said, no, you're all wrong. I think Apollos wrote it. And Calvin said, no, I think Luke wrote it. And in our day, the three main views are Luke wrote it, Paul wrote it, or Apollos wrote it. But the answer is, we don't know. There's a great old hymn that says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that'll be. We'll have lots of reasons to rejoice, and one of them will be we'll meet and discover the author of the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, but we know somebody over there said God wrote it, and that's right. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And this is scripture. It's the word of God. Second question here on the porch, when was Hebrews written? Not much time on this, but it's, it, it's germane. It's interesting. So we know the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. Why? Because in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the sacrificial system was destroyed, never to be reinstated, and all kinds of things changed, and there was the dispersion of the Jews to hither and yon all over the earth. And so that had not yet happened in the book of Hebrews, or it would have come up with what he's dealing with. In the book of Hebrews, the temple's still in Jerusalem, and the sacrifices are still occurring because some people are considering leaving Christ and going back to them. So we know we're before A.D. 70, so we're in the 60s, somewhere in the 60s. That's 30 years after Jesus Christ walked the earth and taught and suffered and bled and died and was buried and was raised on the third day and appeared and ascended to the Father. We're within 30 couple years of when that happened. That's when Hebrews was written. Next question, most important one here on the porch. Going to take a little longer with this one. Why was Hebrews written? There's always a reason. The author had a, had a reason. He's always trying. Every author of every scriptural book is trying to solve a problem. Those people have a problem. I will write them to solve the problem. What was the book of Hebrews written to solve? Well, there are two groups that he constantly addresses. He shifts from one group to the other throughout the book. I'll point it out to you every time it happens. There's a little Greek phrase that, that recurs, or sometimes it's just a portion of the phrase, but it recurs a bunch of times. In Greek, it's tis ex humon, which means some of you. So he's teaching along, he's teaching to the group at large, he's teaching, teaching, and then he says, but I fear that some from among you. I fear that some of you. I fear that tis ex humon. Sometimes he just calls them tis, some. I'm concerned about some of you. So he's got two groups in mind. There's the Hebrew believers, and he's addressing them to hold fast, stay with Christ. Don't let the persecutions draw you away from Christ. Don't, don't allow the illegality of the Christian religion in the Roman world to drive you back to the comfort of the legality of Judaism. The Jews and the Romans had struck a deal. They'd smacked hands, and it was okay to be Jewish. But if you're a Christian, they viewed you as an atheist. They viewed you as a rebel because you would not admit Caesar is Lord. You would not submit to Caesar as Lord. So it was illegal. So he's addressing Jewish people, some of whom are doing a pretty good job holding fast, but he wants to exhort them, keep holding fast, and others who have already left Christ and gone back to Moses gone back to Judaism, gone back to the old covenant, gone back to the sacrifices, or they're about to, or they're thinking about maybe going there. So he's addressing these two groups in doing so. He also constantly, we love this about Hebrews, 
He constantly exalts our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to see Christ lifted up from the opening salvo. It is a salvo. You know what a salvo is? A war breaks out and everybody shoots at once. That's a salvo. From the opening salvo all the way through the book, we're going to hear about Christ. Christ exalted. His new covenant exalted. The book is, in other words, written to, to point out the superiority of Jesus Christ to Judaism. The superiority of the new covenant to the old Seven times he uses the word better. Better, 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 better. I think he's making a point there by using that word seven times. He's stressing to the Hebrew people, what you have in Christ is better. So don't go back. By the way, throughout the book, I'm going to make applications to what people in our day might go back to. Christians in our land today are not in danger of going back to Judaism. They were never there and the temple doesn't exist anymore, and so on and so forth. What are people in our day in danger of going back to? Well, there's atheism, there's agnosticism, there's varieties and brands of Christianity that are Christian in name only, but anything they don't like in that book, they get rid of or they never talk about or they explain away. There are all kinds of other things you might go back to. You might go back to false philosophies of the world. In our day, you might go over to cultural Marxism. And make that the dominant view of what's going on on the planet. What's going on on the planet? Well, there are the oppressed and there are oppressors, and we're here to free everybody. That's not the dominant thing going on in Scripture. We're here to free people from their sins, free people with the gospel and to Jesus Christ. So there are people in their day in danger of leaving Christ and going back to Judaism, and there are people in our day in danger of deconstructing and losing their faith in Christ and walking it back to something else. But Christ is better better than the angels. He has a better hope, a better covenant, better sacrifices, better resurrections, a blood that speaks better than Abel, and one other, and I forget what it is right now. Better, 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 seven of them. And Jesus Christ is better than anything you might ever go back to. So the point of the, the whole point of the book is, so hold fast. He's going to say that numerous times. Hold fast. You have need of endurance. Go ahead and suffer with Christ. There's an eternal prize for it. Don't let go. Don't turn away. Don't walk back. One more thing on the porch. No, I have two more, sorry. Two more things on the porch. You hanging in there? All right, two more things. One is these opening verses. We read them. This opening salvo, it is, as one commentator put it, a masterpiece of composition. It is, to use the terms of a an old theologian I love, Robert Louis Dabney, he said, your sermons ought to be full of, and I'm telling you the book of Hebrews is full of, dense, compact, luminous truth. And that's the book of Hebrews. And there's a beauty of the composition. There's even, in the opening words, there's alliteration. You know what that is? That's when you, he begins five words in a row with a letter P. He labored to do that. He wanted to do that just to make a point. And he's exalting Christ. And what we have in these opening verses is one of the Bible's premier presentations of dense Christological doctrine. He comes right out, of the, right out of the gate. Wham! Here's who Jesus Christ is. Here's what he did for us. Here's why you ought to hold fast to him. Here's what my book is going to be about. He comes right out of the gate with that. One of the Bible's premier presentations of Christ. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 2, those three. One more thing on the porch. I just want to tell you, I am conscious of the fact that I'm 69 
and probably will never get to preach through the book of Hebrews again. And honestly, now that struck me. That's sobering. Like, I think I preached through Hebrews once, maybe 15 years ago, and I thought then I didn't think of it twice because I had lots of life left ahead of me. But I realize now I'll probably never get to do this again. And here's my fear. I won't do it well. I'm afraid I won't do it justice. It's such an amazing book. But I'm not just afraid about me. I'm afraid about you all too. However old you are, I'm afraid you won't do this well because it's going to take work, us working together, to get through the book of Hebrews and make profit for our souls. I'm going to commit to do all the work I need to do. Will you commit to do the work you need to do? And together we'll seek the glory of God in the book of Hebrews. Okay, I'm done on the porch. Let's go out back and see the lion. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2a. Read it again. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But... Strong contrast. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. All right. Opening phrase. We're going to move slow in this. We'll move faster in other parts. We'll move faster in the rest of the chapter. This opening salvo is packed. It's going to take a little time. Be patient. Long ago. Well, that's certainly the truth, isn't it? It was long ago. It's way longer ago now than it was then, and it was long ago then. The last great Old Testament prophet, not counting John the Baptist, who really was one, but was Malachi, and you go back from there, and he was 400 B.C. That was long ago in those days. It's really long ago now. And you could go back through all the the major prophets and the minor prophets, the last books of the Old Testament. There are 17 of them, and they were long ago. And you could go back farther and farther and farther, back to Noah and back to Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5, we learn of Enoch. And in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, we find out he prophesied. He's the first person in Genesis 5, identified specifically as a prophet of God long ago. Back in Genesis chapter 5 and all the way down to 400 B.C. with Malachi, long ago. Now he's making a point and you might miss it. Here's what, he's, he's, here's what he's doing with the people. Remember their problem. They're thinking, I'm, persecution's hot, man. This thing I'm into now is illegal. I'm getting uncomfortable. I think I'm going to minimize my Christian, and I'm going to major my Jewish. I think I'm going to leave Christ and trample his blood on their foot and count it as common, and I'm going to go back to the old covenant, and I'm going to go back to Moses. And he's saying to them, look, that was long ago, and he's going to go on to say, but now God has made a new deposit of truth. A greater deposit. It came through a greater messenger, his son. And there's greater light in the Old Testament. We believe in progressive revelation. If you had only the book of Genesis, there's a lot you wouldn't know. If you had only the Old Testament, there's a lot you wouldn't know. And you need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the greater and clearer light of the shorter New Testament. That's sound Bible interpretation. That's sound hermeneutics. That's what we do. And so he's starting to teach them that, and he's saying, look, Long ago, there was all that revelation, but now, but now God has given more, but now God has given greater, but now God has given better. Why then would you leave the new, the now, the greater, the better to go back to long ago? That's what he's doing. 
Long ago, keep that verse there for me, please. Long ago, at many times. Man, that's just the truth. Here's something good to know. God didn't just come down in Old Testament times once and speak one little revelation to one little prophet and say, that's it, y'all. Y'all need to find him somehow. 400 years later, I don't care. Need to find him. There's only one prophet. He came down time again, time and time and time and time and time and time again for a long time. Many times. He's saying the message was not hard to find. It was not hidden. It was not obscure. It wasn't a needle in a haystack. It wasn't one molecule of revelation in a universe of vacuum. No, many times. So he made it so you, were, you could find it. You could know it. It was easy to access. God gave abundant revelation. I like to say this. God lavished revelation upon the planet. Prophet after prophet after prophet. And all of their written prophecies in their books, which were instantly recognized from the people of God, by the people of God as from God. They instantly became part of the Old Testament canon. So many times... And in many ways, man, isn't that the truth? Read through the Old Testament. Sometimes the prophet gives direct, here's what God said, I'm telling you. Other times there's a narrative, a story he tells. Other times there are proverbs. Other times there's poetry. There are parables. There are love songs. There's wisdom literature. There's apocalyptic, spooky, weird, crazy literature. Many ways and many times, so that everybody could have access, so that you had the Word of God bombarding you from all kinds of directions and in all kinds of different ways. You like poetry? I'll give you poetry. You like apocalyptic literature? I got some. God had the whole menu of what anybody might want in the restaurant of divine revelation, and he lavished it upon them. Now, let's go on. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, next phrase, God spoke. Whew. God spoke. That great being who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it and you is not silent. He's not mute. God spoke. How often? Long, when? Long ago. How often? Many times. In what ways? Many ways. God spoke. They were all of them God speaking. This is amazing. The great being who made us spoke. I love the theologian and apologist. He's now in heaven. Francis Schaeffer. He was a big thing when I had just come to Christ. I was a Francis Schaeffer nut for a long time. I just reread one of his books a month ago. Loved it. And the title of one of his books is, He is There and He is Not Silent. It's a wonderful title for a book. He is there. He's actually there and he's not silent. He's not mute. God is a speaking God. He has spoken a lot. He's spoken many times. He's spoken in many ways. He's revealed to us who we are and who he is and what the need of our souls is. He's made it clear. He's bombarded us from all angles and times and different people and means so that we might know the most amazing thing on this planet, I tell you, is that God spoke. Can you name anything more amazing? 
your YouTube feed? How's that compare? Also, this isn't mentioned in Hebrews, but it's going to come up from some other passages that we won't really go to, but I'll name the ones I'm thinking about here. That God who spoke, he intends that we would hear his speaking. Paul says in Acts 14 to some pagan people who knew not God or his word, he says to them, look, I I need to tell you about the God up there. In him you live and move and have your being, and he designs things such that you are supposed to seek him, and he's not very far from you if you'll grope for him and find him. This is what Paul said in his evangelistic ministry to those people. There's a God. You're supposed to seek him. How am I supposed to know there's a God and then seek him? Well, let's go over to Romans 1 in our thinking. So in Romans 1, he says, the things of God are clearly revealed to all peoples in all times and all places, even his eternal power and his Godhead or his Godness. You can tell from the planet, if you're willing to, man, there's a God. There's a great being who created all of this. There's about a billion things we could name that are evidence of that. But let's stick with Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can't look up without seeing it. And the earth, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows forth knowledge. And there is no people or language where his voice is not heard. God is pounding the earth with revelation about himself from the sky. And in a million other ways. I'll just mention one because I think it's interesting. Why does math work? Where did numbers come from? Did we invent them? Did somebody come up with that? Or did we discover them? There's a lot of scholarly talk about that. We didn't invent math. We've discovered math. I read a book by a physicist recently. He made it simple. I could read. And his name is Mac Tegmark. And the name of his book is Our Mathematical Universe. It was amazing. The universe is made of math. It's all mathematical. Where did that come from? How did that happen? God. So God, the God of the universe, spoke. Now, here's where I want to get to. I got off. Um, The God who spoke designed our brains and our eyes and our ears so that we might hear him speaking. So that we might speak to one another, yes. So we might hear him speaking. He's a God who has thoughts. He's a God who communicates in words. He made us to be able to easily acquire language. Do you know that language skills are hardwired into us? It's just like, how do birds know how to migrate? It's not like one bird taught another bird. They just know it. It's hardwired into them and passed down genetically. How does a baby know to go ahead and you give them the bottle? I'll make it a bottle, keep it kosher. You give them the bottle and they suck on that thing. How do they know to suck on that? Did you have to teach them? No, they know. How do they know how to swallow? It's hardwired in them. They, They come with that already in them. We are hard, yeah, programmed. We are hardwired. We are programmed to easily and to eagerly acquire language skills. Now, it takes work to acquire them, but we're hardwired to learn language, and we start doing it very early. Our youngest grandchild right now is, is just months old. He doesn't say any words yet. We love him. We go over there and babysit. She does more than I do, but sometimes us. We go over there and babysit, give him his bottle and stuff, and He's just, his first attempts at saying words are, he goes, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and we love it. You all smiled to be nice to me. We love it. We're, we're, we're digging that so much that when we're at home, just the two of us, and I walk past her in the hallway, I might go, ah, 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 and she laughs. 
What's he doing? He's, that's the very beginnings of his baby way of acquiring uh, phonetics. And when you talk, he's looking at your mouth and watching how, and that they do that. They watch and they listen. And soon he'll be saying, dad, 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 because I repeat that one to him all the time. Dad, 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 dad. Dad, 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 dad. And they can say that word easier than mama anyway, so they tend to learn that one first. Interesting how God made that. <laughs> Don't read any more into that statement than you should, all right? But he hardwired us so that we could acquire words and think in them and reason in them and, and communicate in them. God made us in such a way that we can hear from him. And so if you're not a believer, here's something you're supposed to do. You know, what human will actually do this? Some. You're supposed to look at the universe and say, man, there's got to be a God. I want to know who he is. And maybe then you realize, look, I'm speaking. I'm thinking. He must be speaking, thinking. I'm going to speak to him. Oh, God, if you're there, please show me. And guess what happens? Amazon makes a big mistake, and the Bible that other guy ordered lands up in your mailbox and you read it, you open to the, it, the marker was in the Gospel of John, and you start there, and in three days you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or he sends a missionary, or he sends a friend at work, or somebody starts to talk to you. Or you're supposed to reason like this, there must be a great God, I want to seek him. Now let's see, I'm a reasoner, he's a reasoner, I'm a thinker, he's a, I have language, he has language. There must be a deposit somewhere in language. There must be a book. Either there's a book or else he has to come to every one of us individually and tell us individually and personally his whole revelation. That wouldn't be very economic. I bet there's a book on the planet where I can discover the words of this God. He must have words. He made me to have words. Where are his words? Well, that's easy. It's not in the Bhagavad Gita. I'm going to ask, like, what's the most ancient book and what's the most read religious book on the planet? Well, that's really easy. That's the Bible. That's the word of God. There's no close second. If I am an alien, don't call me an alien. If I'm an alien and I land on the planet and I say, tell me about your religions. What's the biggest one? What's the, what's the oldest one? What's the, the book that's sold most copies of any other? And guess which one it is? It's the one you're holding on your lap by far. So I'm going to say, let me start there. Very quickly, I meet the Lord Jesus Christ. I meet God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God uses his word and converts my soul. So that can happen. But the point is, God has spoken. To whom? Let's go on. Well, man, we're making good time. We're down to the what? Sixth word? To whom? To the fathers. He spoke to the fathers by the prophet. He spoke to the fathers. Who are they? Well, at least Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul, David, the fathers. He spoke to the fathers. So we're acknowledging to you Hebrew people who are thinking of going back to the fathers. Yes, God spoke there. He spoke to them. They were the fathers of the nation. They were the fathers of the faith. And God spoke to them way back. And now in these last days, but in these last days, we are in the last days. They were in the last days. The last day clock started ticking when Christ was crucified and buried and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit and all that, the beginning of the last days. And he says, so yes, God spoke there many ways, many times, the prophets, two of the fathers, but in these last days, we are in the last days, they were in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. 
Now they were supposed to go and we're supposed to go, oh. You see a contrast in that? He spoke by whom? Prophets. None of them were identified as his son. So he sent prophets and prophets and prophets. What they do? Killed them and killed them and killed them. And now he said, I'm going to send my son. They'll listen to him. And he, he's now spoken to us in his son. That's greater revelation. Why would you leave the son, bringing the word of his father, to go back to prophets? Or to go back to anything? No, in these last days he spoke to us in his son. It's even, it's even better. Can you hang in there with like some Greek stuff? So it's even better. It's not he spoke to us through a son. It's God has now spoken us in son. There's no definite article. It's not the son. It's he's spoken to us in or through or by son. He's emphasizing by that grammatical construction, one who has the, the quality of sonness. They didn't. Abraham didn't, Isaac didn't, Moses didn't. Only God the Son has the quality of being a son. What's the point? A son is better than a prophet. A son is better than Moses. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable of unfaithful tenants. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees of his day were. They were unfaithful tenants. And he tells them God sent prophets, many of them, some they beat and others they killed. And God said, all right, I'll send them my son, him they'll respect. Mark 12, 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. That's what they did when God sent his son. You have been blessed to hear about, to know about, the sinless Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are blessed to have new covenant, clear light, and beaming, blinding revelation about saving faith through the, in the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why would you leave him? Why would you leave God's Son to go back to, you name it, to go back to anything. Yeah, I'm thinking I might not be a Christian anymore. I might go back to naturalism. I'm not a Christian. I might become a cultural Marxist. I'm not a Christian. I might become a, you fill in the blank. There's plenty of blanks that people would fill in there. Why would you leave Christ? Hold fast. Listen to him. Follow him. Now there's more about the son. Hebrews 1, 2b. Pause and get a drink. Hebrews 1, 2b, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So now it's even better. He's son, and with son goes inheritance, right? So God appointed this, his son, the one who brought the new covenant and the new revelation. God appointed him as heir of, of what? Of all things. The prophets were not heir of all things. The fathers were not prophets of heir things. The people you're thinking of going back to were not, sorry, heirs of all things. Jeremiah was not an heir of all things. Why would you go back to them? Hold fast to the son. He is the heir of all things. Heir of what? Not the lot that Debbie and I live on, which I'm pure guessing must be about 120th or 140th of an acre. He's not heir of just that. 
He's not Arab, well, let's make it the United States. He's not just that. Let's make it the planet, not just that. Let's make it the universe, that. Even a renewed one, a new heaven and a new earth, it's all his. Three quick references on that, Christ being heir of all things. First, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 2.8, the Father says to the Son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Romans 9.5, Paul identifies Christ. He is God over all. 1 Corinthians 15.27, Paul says, the Father has subjected all things to the Son. He is heir of all things. You might know, you might be interested to know, you might not be interested to know that the known universe, that's as far as we can see that way and as far as we can see that way with our best telescopes in the sky, as far as we can see, the known universe is 90, what is it, 98 billion light years wide. So if you traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 98 billion years to go from one end to the other. And by the way, when you get to the other, the universe gets bigger because now you can see farther. And the cosmologists in our day are basically saying, look, it's infinite. And what they mean by that is it's not actually infinite, it's not, but it's growing so fast that you could never reach an end of it. It's just expanding so rapidly at greater than the speed of light. Now, why? I don't want to get into that. I could explain that, but we won't. He is the heir of all things. It all belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, let me leave Hebrews for a second and up the ante, and this is the thing we'll kind of finish up with today. And we, if you're in Christ, you are a joint heir with him. Listen, Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That provided we suffer with him means provided we don't walk away, provided we don't go back to ease, provided we don't return to the world. No, if we stay with Christ, and that might mean suffering, but if we, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him, and we'll be joint heirs with Christ. That little one-fortieth of an acre Debbie and I live on, huh. just wait a little while. The universe. Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's great encouragement. Are you discouraged with what you own? You say, I don't own anything. I've worked for five years, all I own is debt. Well, you might need to listen to, can't think of his name, Dave Ramsey, thank you, yes. He's in my feed and I like him. You might listen to Dave Ramsey. Or you might just need to work harder and wait a while. But pretty soon, if you're in Christ, whew, you know, they, t they say of the ministry, the pay isn't the highest, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. <laughs> All right? So are yours if you're in Christ. So I'm going to bring the plane down now. I'd hoped to get farther, but we didn't. So let me just say a few things in closing. So obviously, you're going to hear this a bunch throughout the book. I'll try to not do it every Sunday, but what's the point? So hold fast to Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ? Do you name his name? Don't ever walk away. 
Don't ever get wobbly. Don't ever leave him. Don't ever pull back. Hold fast to Jesus Christ and die in Christ and die in his arms and wake up in glory and as an heir of all things. Keep on believing. Keep following him. Keep calling upon him. Keep repenting of your sins. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we sinners need. That's what we saints need. Here's the second thing we're going to learn in the book of Hebrews a lot. So let's start now. Stand in awe of him. If you went to Niagara Falls, would you be awestruck? Probably so. I've never been there. Probably so. If you went to the Grand Canyon, I've been there. Awestruck. If you look at the universe, the Milky Way, at least awestruck. Jesus, stand in awe of him. He is the sinless son of God. So hold fast. Stand in awe of Jesus Christ because he is better, better than whatever you're looking at, better than whatever else you could name, better than anything else you're thinking of. Stay with Jesus Christ. Have you not yet come to Jesus Christ? Come to Christ. The Bible says there is a fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. Go there and be washed in Christ's shed blood. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. We pray that men and women, boys and girls in this building today would Come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, in your mercy, so many of us have. And we pray that we'll learn more about our Savior and that you will strengthen us and establish us such that we'll never walk away, but we'll persevere, we'll hold fast, we'll keep on believing and repenting and following till our dying breath. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey friends, would you like to talk with a Cornerstone pastor? We are very available to you. Here's one easy way you can get a hold of us. You can just text the word pastor to the number that's on the screen and one of our guys will reach out to you this week. We love doing that. Don't hesitate. Give us the opportunity and we'll be in touch. Thanks. Stan. Thank you, Steve. And good afternoon, everyone. Bible tells us, as Steve mentioned, we live and move and have our being as a result of, of God. And we are here to worship God today. And I wanna urge us never to take our life for granted and never take communion for granted as well. In his last hours before he left this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples that he earnestly desired to eat the Passover with them before he suffered. And Passover was a reminder to 